Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Pitola Radio. And what I got to do now is kind of play from John MacArthur. This is Keeping Pierce. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and the Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found God's Peace. It's all about helping you defeat anxiety and know true and lasting contentment. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's P-E-A-C-E at gty.org. Offer good in North America and Europe through June of 2017. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. We come now to the study of God's precious word and the second chapter of Galatians, Galatians chapter 2. We're working our way through this letter to the region of Galatia where Paul had planted a number of churches by preaching the gospel. This is the first of 13 letters that Paul wrote that are included in the New Testament. And the purpose of this letter is to make crystal clear what the gospel really is. Satan always tries to counterfeit everything. He appears disguised as an angel of light. His ministers are disguised as angels of light. They masquerade within the people of God and among the people of God and in the church, subtly proclaiming error. And any deviation of the gospel is a cursed thing. Back in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, if anybody preaches another gospel than the gospel that I have preached to you, let him be anathema, cursed, damned. Paul's concern in writing this letter, according to chapter 2, verse 5, at the end of the verse, is so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. He's concerned about the truth of the gospel. Because the gospel, the good news of salvation is clearly defined in Scripture as the only way people can escape hell. We have to get the gospel right. So Satan works overtime to spread wrong representations of the gospel. He operates not only outside the Christian church with anti-Christian religion, but inside the church in much more subtle ways with corrupt forms of the gospel and false teachers who identify themselves as believers in Jesus Christ. Paul was the apostle of the gospel. There is no New Testament when Paul writes. The gospel basically is being communicated by this man and those who are traveling with him. 
and the other apostles. Peter was a preacher of the true gospel. His preaching dominates the first half of the book of Acts, which is the record of the early preaching of the gospel. Paul comes in to preach in the 12th chapter and fills the rest of the book of Acts all the way to chapter 28. The gospel resides in these men until it is eventually written down in the New Testament by the apostles and those who were their associates. It is imperative then that people believe Paul. False teachers had come into Galatia, as they always did, following the work of Paul, and brought in a false gospel. The true gospel was clear. The people in Galatia, in the cities of Galatia where churches had been established, believed the true gospel. But in came false teachers with another gospel, which is no gospel, who would have been accursed by God or preaching a deviant gospel. And they basically said the gospel that Paul preached is not true. Salvation is not by faith alone. You must also follow the traditions and the customs and the ceremonies and the circumcision of Moses. They were Jews purporting to believe in Christ, to believe in His death and resurrection, accept Him as Messiah and Savior. But His work was not sufficient, and believing in Him was not sufficient. If you were to be saved as a Gentile, you needed to be circumcised and follow the patterns of Mosaic law. Paul writes Galatians to defend the true gospel. And he does that in chapters 3 and 4. In chapters 1 and 2, he defends his apostleship because if they don't believe him, then there's no source for the true gospel. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. He is the one proclaiming the true gospel. The false teachers called Judaizers for wanting to turn Gentiles into some form of Jews by forcing them to adhere to Mosaic law The Judaizers claim that Paul is a false apostle because he does not include the Mosaic prescriptions. So before he can define the gospel in clear terms, which he does in chapters 3 and 4, he actually begins at the end of chapter 2, as we'll see, he has to defend his apostleship. And so he begins in chapters 1 and 2 with a defense of the fact that he was appointed by God personally called by Christ, and then trained by Christ for three years in the desert called the Nabataean Arabia. He was not any, any different, any less than all the other original apostles. To be an apostle, you had to see the risen Christ. He saw him on the Damascus road and several times subsequently. To be a true apostle, you had to be commissioned by Christ. On that occasion on the Damascus Road, Acts chapter 9, he was directly commissioned by Christ. In order to be a true apostle, you had to have been taught by Christ. The original apostle spent three years with Christ. He taught them for three years. So he took Paul by himself 
into Nabataean Arabia for three years, and Jesus taught him. He was a class of one. Early in chapter 1, he defends his apostleship based on his personal calling by Christ, based upon his personal teaching that Christ had given to him. He says, I didn't learn the gospel from men. I was not taught by men. I didn't learn it from the apostles in Jerusalem. I was directly taught by Christ Himself. This is the initial credential of His true apostleship. And then in chapter 2, He says, after a period of 14 years, I finally did go to Jerusalem and sit with the apostles. Three years in the wilderness, 14 more years, totaling 17, before I went to Jerusalem. I didn't learn this from the apostles. I didn't get this from men. Fourteen years later, after I came back from being trained by Christ personally for three years, I went to Jerusalem. And when I got there, I gave them the gospel that Christ had given to me and that I'd been preaching for 14 years in the Gentile world, and they affirmed it was the true gospel and according to verse 9, James, the brother of our Lord, the head of the church, Cephas, who is Peter, and John, the apostles, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. In other words, the act of solidarity, you're preaching the true gospel, go to the Gentiles. So he says, I am an apostle because God chose me and Christ called me. I am a true apostle because I was trained personally by Christ for three years. I am an apostle because my message was validated by the apostles and the leading ones, James, the leader of the church, and the two apostles, Peter and John. Then he comes to the third defense of his apostleship, his confrontation of Peter. We'll pick it up in verse 11. But when Cephas, that's the Aramaic for the word Peter, name Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. At this time, Paul was a pastoring a church in Antioch along with Barnabas and some other men. Uh, Peter had come there to visit them and stayed quite a long time. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, there is sort of the pinnacle evidence of his genuine apostleship. He literally condemns the leading apostle. Nobody questioned Peter's apostleship. But Paul condemns him, opposing him to the face. Why? For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. And we looked at that last Sunday. This is the sad experience of the defection of Peter. Peter has been in Antioch for a while. That's a Gentile city and a Gentile church, of course. Some Jewish believers were there but it was predominantly a Gentile church. Peter came to visit, and the whole time Peter was there, he was eating with the Gentiles. He was not asking that they be circumcised or that they prescribe to the laws of Moses. He accepted them as brothers in Christ. This is a church. These are believers. These are Gentile believers. 
Peter had no problem with that. Jews didn't eat with Gentiles. They didn't use the same utensils. They didn't eat the same food. They didn't sit in the same room. They didn't socialize with Gentiles. That was forbidden in Jewish culture. Peter had no problem, entered right in, ate with the Gentiles. That means meals, regular meals during the day, as well as the love feast, Christian celebration of love, and as well as the Lord's table, which was a part of the love feast, breaking of bread, remembering the death of Christ. He had no problem with fellowshipping with Gentiles until certain men came purporting to come from James, who was the brother of our Lord and the head of the Jerusalem church. They said they represented James. It's almost certain that James did not send them to corrupt the gospel. He would never do that. But they claimed to come from James. And when they arrived and they began to espouse their Judaistic teaching that you must adhere to Mosaic law, you must be circumcised, and you must abide by Mosaic law. Mosaic law had elements of separation from Gentiles. Couldn't eat the same food, didn't wear the same kind of clothes. Jews had no dealings with Gentiles. Peter's had no problem fellowshipping with them. But when these men arrived, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof. Why would he do that? It says, fearing the party of the circumcision. That's what they are called, the party of the circumcision. Those who are demanding that Gentiles be circumcised and adhere to the laws of Moses if they are to be Christians. He's afraid of the party of the circumcision. Why would he be afraid of them? Human fear, but why? He was the leading apostle to the Jews. If they um, found him doing something that they felt was wrong, they could discredit him. They were aggressive. They were vicious. He knew that. He protected his reputation. As soon as they showed up, he pulled back from the Gentiles and started acting like a Jew isolating himself from the Gentiles. The rest of the Jews followed his lead in verse 13, joining him in hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy because he knew the gospel. He preached the true gospel. He knew there was no constraint in the gospel for circumcision and law-keeping. He knew that. So this is hypocrisy for him to act like the Judaizers were right when he knew they were wrong. And the rest of the Jewish believers in Antioch joined him, and Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Two times the word hypocrisy is used in that very short 13th verse. The actions of Peter and Barnabas and the other Jewish believers in Antioch is not just a matter of personal hypocrisy. It is personal hypocrisy because they knew that what the Judaizers taught was not true. But their capitulation to the Judaizers is a, an assault on the doctrine of salvation. Without saying anything, and Peter doesn't say anything here, without saying anything, he took sides with those who taught salvation by faith and works without saying anything. 
He fractured the church. Overnight, the church was in chaos because of his defection back to Judaism, as if the Judaizers were right. These enemies of the gospel, whose message was cursed. That brings us to verse 14. In response to Peter's defection comes Paul's doctrine. Verse 14, let me read this to you. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, and this is what he said to him when he opposed him to the face, as it's mentioned in verse 11, this is what he said. I said to Cephas in the presence of all, in front of the entire church, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles, that's what you've been doing. You've been living like the Gentiles and not like the Jews. How is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul is profoundly exercised. Verse 14 says, I saw that they were not straightforward. Orthopodeo, from which we get orthopedic. Ortho meaning straight. Podeo is the verb from which the word foot comes. They weren't walking straight. They were not walking straight about the truth of the gospel. And again, as he said in chapter 2, verse 5, it's about the truth of the gospel that he confronts this issue. They were living out of line with the gospel. They were not walking according to gospel truth. They were off track. They were playing the hypocrite and sending the message that the Judaizers are right. Salvation is not by faith alone, it's by faith plus works. And that's another accursed gospel. Peter had believed that he could eat in fellowship with Gentiles. He had done it. He knew that since Acts 10 and his experience with Cornelius. He had no longer lived according to Jewish prescription. He had left that behind in the 10th chapter of Acts. Now he goes back to that in a hypocritical way and leads others to the same hypocrisy. He didn't deal honestly with the truth of the gospel. He altered people's perception of truth by his behavior. What an indictment. Paul is furious about this. And so he opposes him to his face, but he does it in the middle of verse 14, in the presence of all consistent with what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, an elder who sins rebuke before all that others may fear. He confronts Peter in a public way. Augustine said, It is not advantageous to correct in secret an error which occurred publicly. He's right. You have to show public condemnation of a public sin. So he does that. It's a lot better than pulling Peter aside and trying to fix him in private. He needed to be confronted in public because that's where his disaffection had occurred and led people into confusion. They knew the gospel. This is a church. They're saved by faith alone, 
They knew that. The Gentiles knew that. The Jewish believers knew that. That's why Paul is so shocked. Back in chapter 1, he says, I, 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 I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you for a different gospel. Why are you leaning that way? Peter is not overtly saying, I don't believe the true gospel. He's just acting like what the Judaizers are teaching is true. This is a very dangerous compromise. Anytime those who preach the true gospel affirm or embrace anyone who teaches a false gospel, confusion reigns. Come out from among them and be separate. Light has no fellowship with darkness, Christ with Belial. Peter, you can't do this. Everyone in Antioch knows you're in the habit of living like a Gentile since the 10th chapter of Acts, and you've done it here. And they all know that you preach the gospel of grace, and you affirm the gospel of grace and faith alone. And now you're playing right into the hands of the Judaizers, and you're acting as if they're right by lining up with them. This threatens the integrity of the gospel. This is always about the gospel. This is a serious breach. So with that, we come to verse 15. We saw Paul's response in verse 14. Now we hear his statement. He's going to go back and define the gospel again. His statement is in verses 15 and 16. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Important words there. The word faith is there. The word law is there. But there's another word there used for the first time, which is critically essential to the message of this letter and to the gospel. It is the word justified. And you see it three times in verse 16, one time in verse 17, and then it's repeated even again in verse 21. Paul is going to make a statement about the doctrine of justification, which explains the true gospel's view of faith and law. Paul unfolds this great core doctrine of justification by faith alone. This is the article of faith that Luther said, if it's lost, all true doctrine is lost and the church is lost. How are we to understand the doctrine of justification? Let me give you a contrast. If you said to someone in a court, you're condemned, you would understand that. 
The opposite of that is to say to someone, you're justified, you're righteous. It is the opposite of condemnation. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. Condemnation says you are guilty. Justification says you are not guilty. Condemnation says you are evil. Justification says you are righteous. Condemnation says you are bad. Justification says you are good. It is a legal term. It is a law court term. To condemn someone is to declare them guilty. To justify someone is to declare them not guilty. And in the Bible, justification is God's free, gracious act by which He declares a sinner not guilty, forgiving and pardoning that sinner and accepting him into fellowship. That is the foundation of true religion, Christianity, and the gospel. Again comes Bildad's question in Job 25, how can man be righteous before God? How can a condemned sinner be declared just? Paul answers, by faith by faith in Christ, by faith alone, not by works. So here we have the statement of justification by faith alone. It's so clear and unmistakable. But let's notice the power of this Jewish argument. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles, verse 15. What is he saying? We, meaning Jewish Christians like Peter, to whom he's speaking, and Paul and Barnabas, we, like other Jewish believers in the church at Antioch, we, though Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. This is a contrast you have to understand. Paul says, we're all Jews by nature, those of us who are the sons of Abraham. We've lived all our lives under the law. We've lived all our lives with Scripture. We know the system well. The Jewish religious system dominated Jewish culture. It was a single-soul, monolithic, monotheistic System. There weren't multiple religions in Israel like there were in the Gentile world. There was the one religion of their form of Judaism. We lived under that. And so we were not sinners as the Gentiles. What do you mean you're not sinners? He means in a visible, manifest, earthly sense. Our Judaism prescribed our lives Our Judaism restrained us. Gentiles are called sinners because they lived without restraint. They lived without restraint. Their deities are wretched. Their deities are immoral. Their temples are full of prostitutes. Gentile religion is gross, immoral religion. We weren't like that. 
We know what it is to live under law. We haven't lived like Gentile sinners. We know what it is to live under the law. And we lived under the law. And the law restricted us and constrained us. And we tried to love God. And we tried to keep His commandments. And we fasted. And we prayed. And we gave alms. And what did we learn by living under the law? What did we learn? Verse 16. This is what we learned. Nevertheless, in spite of that, we found out that a man is not justified by the works of the law. We were there already. We've been there. The position of the Judaizers is you've got to have the law operating. The Jews are saying, hey, we've been there. Paul says we've experienced all of that. We have done what Romans 10.3 says. We've gone about to establish our own righteousness. We've tried to work our way to God like Paul in his testimony in Philippians 3. And what did we find out? We found out that a man is not justified by the works of the law. That's why we fled to Christ. That's why we're Christians. It was external. Jesus pointed that out in the Sermon on the Mount. You don't kill anybody, but you hate people. So you're a murderer in your heart. You don't commit adultery, but you lust. So you're, you're a fornicator in your heart. You're an adulterer in your heart. We know that the law can't change the heart. We've been there. All the law did was lead us to condemnation and death. We know to try to live by the law is futile in your own strength. It's astonishing then for believers to think we've got to go back to the law with all their racial superiority, covenant promise, legal benefit, Scripture. They found out one very, very significant thing. The law pronounced condemnation. A man is not justified by the works of the law. What did we find out? But through faith in Christ Jesus. But through faith in Christ Jesus. That's why we're Christians. On the cross, He died for our law-breaking. He paid the penalty for our violations of the law. He paid the penalty in full. He bore our sins in His own body on the cross. He became sin for us. Now, all that is required for us to be justified is to acknowledge that sin and helplessness to repent of self-will and self-efforts and self-righteousness and put our whole confidence in the work of Jesus Christ. We did that. We believed and we were justified and we were given the Holy Spirit, and we've been living in the life that God gave us. Literally, he says in verse 16, through faith, ice, through faith into Jesus Christ. Into Jesus Christ. It's an act of deep commitment. Not just agreeing that Jesus lived and died, but running to Him as our refuge. And when we ran to Christ as our refuge, 
We embrace the one who fully satisfied the law of God and the one who bore the penalty for all our sins by a judicial act of God. Because our sins were paid for in Christ, God declared us righteous by faith alone. Nicodemus was the ruler of the Jews. He's a member of the ruling party, the Pharisees, part of the elite leaders of Jerusalem. He is an extreme legalist at the most extreme level. He is a Pharisee, and there just are no conversions of Pharisees until you get to him. They are such extreme legalists. He comes to Jesus in the midst of all of his fastidious extreme legalism, and he has bound himself to all the Mosaic prescriptions. And the question in his heart is, how do I get into the kingdom of heaven? How do I get into the kingdom of God? So here is a Jew who has kept the law as much as is humanly possible to an extreme level, and guess what? He knows he's not in the kingdom. That's the point to which Jewish believers came. We saw what the law did. It was useless. Nicodemus comes with all of that, and he knows he's not in the kingdom. He wants to know, how can I be in the kingdom? And Jesus doesn't say to him, here's a couple more things you need to do. He says you need to be born again. You need to, to literally go back and start all over again. None of that means anything. Your entire life of accumulated works are meaningless. You're as fast on your way to hell as a humanistic, naturalistic, immoral atheist. You've got to start all over again because works play no part. How can that be, says Nicodemus? Jesus says, you have to be born from above. You can't do it. God has to do it. All the sinner can do is cry out to God to give him life and faith in Christ. So we've lived under the law. We know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. And so even we have believed already in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. And here's the general principle. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. No flesh. It's impossible. We've been there, he's saying to Peter. We've, we've been there. We've been under the law. What did it do? It just condemned us. So you have Paul's reaction, and then you have Paul's statement. And he repeats it three times in that one sixteenth verse so that it is absolutely unmistakable. It's personal. We believed. It's universal. No flesh will be justified. We have believed the only possible truth that can justify us in God's sight. 
He's still firing away, by the way, at Peter and Barnabas and the others. So his reaction, his statement, and then I want you to notice in verse 17 to the end, and we'll cover this briefly, even though we could spend a lifetime on it. I know you know a lot of this, so I, I, I don't want to bring it back up again, all of it in detail, but let's just take a look at what he says. This is his defense, his response, his statement, his defense. He defends justification by faith alone. And here you see that the Bible is not a lot of sentimental thoughts about religion. The Bible is full of these powerful, carefully crafted arguments of an inspired, brilliant mind. And you see one of those in these verses. So let's look at it. Stick with it. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, which is the only way, by faith, of course, we ourselves have also been found sinners. Is Christ then a minister of sin? Now, at first you read that and you say, wait a minute, what is, what is he saying there? He's basically, for the sake of argument, granting the Judaizers' point. And the point of the Judaizers is this. If all you're doing is trusting in faith, you're not saved. You need to go back to the law, be circumcised, and adhere to the law. So Paul says, okay, if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we end up being found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? If the Judaizers are right, think with me on this, if the Judaizers are right, then Christ set us up for sin because he proclaims that salvation is through faith in him alone and if we do that believe in him receive his grace embrace it by faith and now you Judaizers say because we're not keeping the law we are sinners then Christ set us free to lead us into sin if the Judaizers are right, demanding that we, in seeking to be justified by faith alone in Christ, apart from works, are turning out to be sinners because we don't keep the law, then are you going to say Christ made us sinners? The gospel sets us free from the law, free from the law's tyranny, free from the law's dominance, free from the law's penalty. Now that Christ has set us free, as he says in chapter 5, verse 1, you're saying to us that if we don't go back to the law, Christ has made us sinners. So are you saying Christ is a minister of sin? Now remember, he's talking to Peter. He's talking to Peter and Barnabas, who's been a co-pastor with him for years. What are you doing? You are condemning Christ. It's pretty bold stuff. Peter had a history of denying Christ, didn't he? When you eat and, and uh, function with Gentiles and accept them in a gracious way as being brothers and sisters in Christ, 
because of faith alone, you're right. But if you, Peter, Barnabas, and the rest, if you go along with the Judaizing legalists, then you're saying that our former liberty, your former liberty, the way you've been living since Acts 10 and the way you've been living in Antioch was sin. And therefore, Christ freed you into sin by telling you you're free from the law. Christ made you a worse sinner than ever. Paul recoils from his own logic because it's blasphemy and says, may it never be. May Ganeta in the Greek, no, 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 no. Not possible. God forbid. No, Christ isn't the sin promoter here. The Judaizers are the sin promoters. Verse 18. For if I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Christ isn't the transgressor by freeing us from the law. You're the transgressor by taking us back to the law and rebuilding what you once destroyed in the gospel of grace. Instead of committing sin by abandoning law for grace, you become a sinner by returning to the law which you abandoned. You're rebuilding a system of legalism. This is some confrontation between Peter and Paul, isn't it? If I go back and try to establish salvation by law, I'm the transgressor. I'm the hypocrite. I can't do that. Why, Paul? Verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. He says, this is a historical fact. I died to the law. Listen, as a Christian, you don't define your life by the law. You don't define your life by the law. Legalists do that and libertines do it. Legalists define their life by the observance of the law. Libertines and antinomians define their Christian life by their indifference toward the law. But in both cases, they're just two sides of the same coin defining Christian experience by a relationship to the law. We don't define our life by a relationship to the law. We define our life by a relationship to Jesus Christ. I died to the law. The law is no longer my master. It is no longer sitting in condemnation on me. I died to the law. That's a historical fact. At salvation, at the time that I believed in Christ, I died to the law. I have no more connection to the law. No more connection to circumcision. No more connection to Sabbaths and feast days and festivals and new moons and all the things that Paul pushes away in Colossians 2. It doesn't mean that I live a disobedient life. Quite the contrary. I have a new master, Christ. I obey Him out of love, not the law out of fear. Love, Paul says, fulfills the whole law. In fact, when I lived under the law, I couldn't keep the law, and I was a whited sepulcher. On the outside, painted white inside, full of stinking dead men's bones. But in Christ, I can fulfill the law, Romans 8.1. 
from the heart. Why? Because with justification comes regeneration, and with regeneration comes a new heart, a new spirit, a new nature. The law doesn't define my life. I'm not a legalist and I'm not a libertine. I don't live with a perspective toward the law. I live to God. How did that happen? How did you go from the law defining everything, circumcision, all the restraints, all the restrictions, all the ceremonies, all the rituals, all the requirements? How did you go from that to just living to God? Verse 20 explains it, one of the great verses in the Bible. I have been crucified with Christ. Oh, how did you die to the law? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Do you see any law in that verse? There's a verse that defines what it is to be a Christian. You have been crucified with Christ. You have risen with Christ. It's no longer you who live. It's Christ living in you and the life which you now live. You don't live under the law, but you live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, Paul says. I live in love. For the Savior who loved me gave himself up for me. I live in complete trust in him. And out of that trust comes loving obedience. What do you mean I've been crucified with Christ? When he died, I died. The reason God can justify the one who has faith in Jesus is because Jesus paid in full the penalty for that believer's sins. I've said this so many times through the years. On the cross, Jesus was punished for all the sins of all the people through all human history who would ever believe. When he died, I was crucified there. When he rose, I rose with him. See it in Romans 6. Baptized or immersed into his death, immersed into his resurrection. Walking in newness of life. Now, I'm not the man I used to be. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What a statement. Union with Christ. I'm not the old me. I don't live in a relationship to the law. I live in a relationship to Christ through faith. I put all my trust in Him. And I seek to please Him, to love Him, to honor Him, to worship Him. And that translates into true obedience to God's law. Not external, not ceremonial, but moral, spiritual. In fact, Paul says what we all know. For those of us who have been crucified with Christ, we've died with Him, have risen with Him. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That is the clearest, simplest definition of what it is to be a Christian. It's not you anymore. It's Christ in you. You have become one with Him. He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Over and over and over, Paul says, in Christ, we're in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Then he flips it and says, Christ in us, Christ in us, Christ in us. I don't know where I end and he begins. I don't live by law. Don't take me back. I live by love. I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. What an incredible truth. 
The moment we believe by a divine miracle we have been crucified with Christ, the law's demands against us for all the violations are satisfied. They have no more hold on us. Self dies. The dominating power of the old nature is broken. I live, yet not I. It's a transformed I. Instead of a sinner with a totally depraved nature attempting to earn acceptance with God by works, I'm now a saint, accepted, beloved, with Christ living in me, living His life through me. I'm obedient because He's obedient. Paul says, look, you can't let go of this. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. If you add works, then grace is no more grace. I will not set aside. I will not nullify. I will not declare as invalid salvation by grace through faith and allow for any works at all. If it comes by my works, then Christ died needlessly. I hope you feel the power of Paul's words and remember to whom he spoke them. To Peter. The pillars of the Christian faith are the grace of God, faith in Christ, and the death and resurrection of Christ. If anyone insists that he can earn his salvation by his own efforts, he undermines the grace of God, salvation by faith alone, and the complete efficacy of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. With this, Paul defends the truth of the gospel. We come to you, Lord, at the end of a wonderful time of worship, fellowship, blessing, thankful beyond expression for the grace that reached down and gave us life when we were dead in trespasses and sins. We thank you that you have regenerated us, given us faith in the true gospel, justified us, redeemed us, that you're sanctifying us, and one day will bring us to eternal glory. We rejoice in the gospel. May we be true to the gospel. Never lean the other way, never deviate, never ever give anyone who proclaims a false gospel any affirmation that they are acceptable. May we be bold for the truth of the gospel. And may you be glorified. Because Christ became sin for us, we have become the righteousness of God in Him. Help us to understand the richness of our union with Christ, which defines our life and makes us love Your law, which was impossible before we were redeemed. We could fear it. We couldn't love it. But now we love it. 
We live by faith in Christ and the love that comes from Him. Thank You for what You're going to do in all our hearts with the truth. It's Your Word more powerful than any two-edged sword. Wield it today in our own hearts. We pray for Your glory. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website, gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
in Truth Be Told Radio, and that was Go Fish with Walk With Gus, and now we got Go Fish with The Solid Rock. John Bunyan, we need, we don't need no, we don't need happy, stuffy features. Here, I'll trip you all over again. This is from John Bunyan, we don't need happy, stuffy features. Sorry for uh, 
didn't turn on the, the volume. Uh, okay, uh, this is from Wretched. That's from their YouTube page. And you can find them at wretched.tv. Wretched.tv. Here we go. Bunyan first mentions that the man is intense and serious looking. God's kind of pastor or elder is grave. As 1 Timothy 3.2 indicates, this means that he takes his work seriously, that he realizes important issues are at stake. And in this way, Bunyan is suggesting that when you're looking for a pastor or elder, you're not looking for someone who is known for being a joker. Have you seen some of these preachers on the Internet? I hope you don't attend the church of one of these pranksters. They're Mr. Zippity-Doo-Dah. They're Mr. Gimmick, they're Mr. Shtick, they're Mr. Light and Frivolous. They do not meet this qualification of a pastor. Does that mean the man has to be totally dour all the time? No, if anybody has joy, it should be the Christian. Remember, even in trials of various sorts, we consider it, we count it all joy. Our biggest problem has been solved. Everything else that we're confronted with, it ain't nothing compared to facing the wrath of God. Jesus has taken care of that. Now the rest of my issues, I can make my way through those choppy waters with joy. And the same thing is true for a pastor. He has a joy that is abiding. But that doesn't mean he's silly. It doesn't mean that he's light. He is tending to the souls of men. And your pastor knows what you and I rarely see. The sheep are sick. The sheep are lame. The sheep are hurting. The sheep are in danger. And your pastor gets exposed to this constantly. And if he is smelling like the sheep, your shepherd is going to be grave and earnest because he's dealing with those issues and... He's dealing with the eternal souls of men. That does not make for a holly jolly pastor. Thank you very much for watching Something Wretched. If you would like to continue watching Wretched videos, would you be kind enough to become a Wretched Club member? Your monthly support keeps us on the air, and you... Get lots of tchotchkes and benefits. Learn more at wretched.tv slash club. Wretched can be found at wretched.tv, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D dot TV. And like I said, if you want to join the, get all their podcasts and stuff, uh, wretched.tv forward slash club. Wretched.tv or C-L-U-B. And what I do now is I'm going to play a song from Go Fish. This one's called Sweet Song of Salvation here on Tributory. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story. Of Jesus and his love
the age of the earth. Genetics and the age of the earth. This is Ken Ham, author of the new book on Noah's Ark called A Special Door. Evolutionists believe modern humans have been around for hundreds of thousands of years. Now, if this is true, there should be huge genetic differences between people groups. Every six generations, a mutation, or a mistake, happens in the DNA we receive from our mothers. If there have been thousands of generations, there would be hundreds of mutations and huge genetic differences. But the most genetic differences scientists have found are only 123, and the average is much less than that. This completely contradicts an evolutionary timeline. But this is the exact maximum number we'd expect in a biblical timeline of just a few hundred generations. The evidence confirms God's Word. Discover more about genetics and human ancestry when you visit our information-packed website at AnswersRadio.com. Sign up for email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. watch porn and you know you need to stop looking at nude people and masturbating to them, there's a simple solution for ending this lurid obsession with the flesh. You won't have to take notes or remember some cutesy acronym. Here it is. Stop looking at porn. It's that simple and you know it. You know what you're doing is evil. God hates it. Have you not read that he will judge all the sexually immoral and throw them in the lake of fire? Is porn and masturbating really so important you would risk going to hell for it? God forbid you've become so enslaved by your lust you don't even think it's wrong anymore. It's harmless, you say. It's not actually sex. The Bible doesn't say anything about masturbating. It's not actually adultery. If that's your attitude, perhaps God's already turned you over to a debased mind to be destroyed by your passions. You've suppressed the truth with unrighteousness. God have mercy on you. But if there's part of you by the Holy Spirit of God still convicted over this, then stop. The Bible says flee from sexual immorality, not go through five stages, not enter a program. Get away from it. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, and the devil will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Beg for God's forgiveness. Ask for the mind of Christ, and he will deliver you from your sin when we understand the text. That is when we understand text W W U T T what and it's uh on YouTube at W W U T T and also on www.utt.com and now from this is from uh wretched Christianity doesn't need motivational speakers here on Tripital Radio. May I ask you, when was the last time you heard a sermon about Jesus that did not involve him wearing sandals, being crucified, but reigning on his throne? Too many pulpits are full of nothing but motivational speaking. Little stories that are picked up here and there about one chap who successfully said, and the other one who successfully that side. What are those chaps compared to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ? 
all that we may we may get back to him who is the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end the firstborn from among the dead and declare him to all Christ 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 That was from Wretched, and their website is wretched.tv, www.wretched.tv, and let's see, what I'm going to do now is play a song from Go Fish, this is Bop here on Tributory.
Mutations, they don't support evolution. This is Ken Ham, President of Answers in Genesis and the new Ark Encounter. Yesterday we learned about the rate at which mistakes pile up in our mitochondrial DNA and that the rate contradicts evolutionary ideas. If humans really have been around for hundreds of thousands of years, we'd expect to see major differences between people and hundreds of mutations. But we don't see that. This is a big problem for evolutionary ideas. Mutations are supposedly the central driving force for evolution, yet evolutionists can't explain such a low number of mutations. The driving force for evolution doesn't match evolutionary predictions. Mutations support a biblical timescale. God created humans a few thousand years ago. There's been no time for mutations to pile up. Want to know more about genetics and what the Bible says about our ancestry? And also to find out more about the full-size ark we've built? Visit AnswersRadio.com. AnswersRadio.com. And now, another one from WWTT, what? When we understand a text here on Truth We Tell Radio. The Bible says those who practice sexual immorality will not inherit the kingdom of God, but will be cast into eternal fire. What is sexual immorality? It's translated from the Greek word porneo, which means fornication. The Bible uses the word for any kind of sexual desire outside the covenant of marriage between a husband and wife, for whom God designed sex, that they may be one flesh. Since God created sex, he gets to define it, so any kind of sex outside his definition of marriage is immoral and idolatrous. Premarital sex, adultery, homosexuality, porn, and masturbation, since sex is not intended for one person but a husband and wife. Jesus said if a man lusts after a woman, he's committed adultery in his heart. The culture will say sex is okay as long as two people love each other, but causing someone else to sin is not loving. 1 Corinthians 7-2 says because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. When sex is enjoyed between a husband and wife, they protect one another from sinning. In a list of sins, sexual immorality is often at the top. Every other sin is outside the body, but sexual sins are committed against the body. It's self-destruction, desecrating that which was made in God's image. The body is for the Lord, and for those united with Christ, sexual immorality dishonors that union, defiles the temple of the Holy Spirit, and is likened to sleeping with prostitutes. Hebrews 13.4 says God will judge the sexually immoral. Ephesians 5.3 says that sexual immorality must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints, when we understand the text. That was when we understand the text. And can be found at www.utt.com and also on YouTube at www.utt. Once again, www.utt.com and www.utt on YouTube. Thanks for listening to Trippy Tall Radio. And now I'm going to play a song from Bo Fishes and it's called Before the Throne of God here on Trippy Tall Radio.
Solomon had a thousand wives and concubines, yet his name is also on Song of Solomon, a romantic and sensuous book of poetry describing sexual intimacy between a young man and his bride. So how can this book be trusted when it's written by a polygamist? First of all, that shouldn't matter. The author of the Bible is God. Every writer was a sinful man, but God remains holy and his word is pure. The scriptures pull no punches when talking about Solomon's many wives and how he did evil in the sight of the Lord by worshiping their false gods. That being said, Solomon is likely not the author of the Song of Solomon. Though the book begins, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, that doesn't mean it was written by him, but in his honor. The young man in this poetic narrative is a shepherd and the young woman a shepherdess. There are several occasions when the young woman calls her husband Solomon, but this is because she sees her husband as being as fine and desirable as the king himself. Solomon was the envy of the entire world. Even the queen of Sheba came to behold all she'd heard of him. So a young wife might look at her husband, common to everyone else, as Solomon in her eyes. Either Solomon is idealized in the story as a country shepherd, which doesn't seem likely, that's not an ideal occupation, or the shepherd is idealized by his bride as Solomon, which makes more sense. Solomon has been interpreted as an allegory of God's love for his people. However this pertains to the bigger picture, there's no question the poetry describes physical intimacy between two young lovers. God created sex to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife. There's a whole book celebrating it when we understand the text. That was from WWT when we understand text and find them at WWTT.com and also WWTT on YouTube. Thanks for listening with Cantrell here on Tributary. Three groups, three women. This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to the authority of God's Word. This week we've learned there are far too few mutations in our mitochondrial DNA to support a long history for mankind. Now, mitochondrial DNA is the genetic information that's passed along only by the mothers. So I got mine from my mum and my kids got theirs from my wife. Now, even evolutionists recognize that you can trace anyone on Earth's mitochondrial DNA back to one of three major genetic groupings. So three women are behind all the diversity we see today. Well, who were these women? Well, the Bible gives us the answer. Noah's three daughters-in-law are the great-great-great-grandmothers of all the people alive today. We're all related through Noah's family, as the Bible says. Go to AnswersRadio.com to learn more about Noah, genetics, and our ancestry. While you're there, sign up for daily email insights from Ken Ham. Go to AnswersRadio.com.
Noah's daughters-in-law. This is Ken Ham, encouraging the church to start all our thinking with God's Word. All humans can be traced back to three major genetic groups. Now these groups are Noah's daughters-in-law. Now all of us are ultimately descended from one woman, Eve. But ten generations after her, the global flood reduced the population to just eight people. And since then, there have been about 400 generations. Now, if this history recorded in Genesis is true, we'd expect to find few genetic differences between Noah's daughters-in-law. Since there weren't many generations before the flood, there wasn't time in the world before the flood for mutations to stack up. And this is exactly what we see. These three women had only a few genetic differences. It confirms God's word. Sign up for free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit our faith-building website at AnswersRadio.com. There are many more answers at AnswersRadio.com. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at TruthBeToldRadio.com. That is... T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M TruthBeToldRadio.com Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com if you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Mutations, a challenge for evolution. This is Ken Ham inviting you to visit our full-size ARC attraction south of Cincinnati. This week we've seen how genetics confirms the Bible's history. Humans, for example, haven't been on the planet for hundreds of thousands of years as evolutionists believe. We're all descended from Adam and Eve just a few thousand years ago. But what about the animals? Well, scientists have measured the mutation rate for several species in the animal kingdom they found there aren't enough mutations to account for even tens of thousands of years of history. Mutations just don't support evolutionary ideas about the past. But it is the rate predicted based on the history provided in God's Word. Creationists can make accurate predictions because we start with the right history. Discover more about the truth of God's Word at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged to trust the Bible from the very beginning when you go to AnswersRadio.com. In Acts 17, 
14, the Apostle Paul stood at the Areopagus where he preached, Men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious, for as I passed along the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you as known. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of men to live on the earth, having determined their time and boundaries, that they should seek God and find him. Yet he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And as your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being God's offspring, we ought not to think he's an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We print in God we trust on our money. Say one nation under God in the Pledge of Allegiance and sing God bless America at our sporting events. But do not assume this is the triune God of the Bible. These are America's altars to an unknown God. The judgment of God is coming upon every nation. We must preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only word that will save their souls when we understand the text. Once again, when we understand text and... That was called God Bless America, which question mark. And you can find those on YouTube at understand Tech, And also on their website at www.utt.com. And thanks for listening to me, Melissa Cantrell, here on Church Be Told Radio, and thanks, uh, let's see, what I'm going to do next for you is, I'm going to play a song, here's Goldfish with Glory.
Goldfish was taken old school. If you want to find out more about Goldfish, you can go to our website at goldfishguys.com, G-O-F-I-S-H-G-U-I-S.com, goldfishguys.com. And this is another song for them called Love Like This here on Trippy Total Radio.
the vibe before, but I meant to say it now. <laughs> now we're really going to go. Um, going to go out with Yancey and friends. And this is the Via Vili, and bye for now. The beat.